I'm Rex Salisbury, and this is the Cambrian FinTech Podcast. On this show, we talk to the founders, operators, and investors who are shaping the future of financial services. Welcome to the very first episode of the Cambrian FinTech Podcast. On this series, you'll hear from founders of iconic companies like Credit Karma, Betterment, and Plaid, as well as some of the sharpest thinkers in fintech, including investors from firms like Andreessen Horowitz and QED, to name just a few of our most recent guests. Today, to kick things off, I'm pulling one of our most popular interviews from the Cambrian YouTube channel. By the way, if you like to watch these interviews in video form, you can. You can find a link to our YouTube channel on our website at cambrianhq.com. The first interview that we're sharing with you today is from Ken Lind, the founder and CEO of Credit Karma. This conversation was originally recorded in May 2022. Enjoy. So immediately from this moment of feeling like, wow, we really built this great you know, service and product that people love, to, oh my God, like 30 days, we're going to be out of business. The highs in entrepreneurship, very high. The lows, very low. And the delta in time between the two can be surprisingly short. Two days, two days, yeah. maybe three days. I think people think that the, you know, the path is like, oh, you just raise an A, you raise a B, it's super easy. And, you know, you go from 25 to 100 to a billion and you go public. Like, that's not really how it goes in entrepreneurship. And people should talk about that more. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Rex, the founder of Cambrian, a community for founders and builders in fintech. I'm incredibly excited for today's program. We're going to be diving into the backstory of Credit Karma. It's one of the most recognizable names in all of fintech. 110 million consumers use Credit Karma to understand their credit scores and get access to some of the best financial products that are tailored specifically to them. And then for investors, the $8 billion sale to Intuit in 2020 was one of the largest exits in fintech history and kind of proved out that fintech was a very material category. But if you think back over Credit Karma's history, which is now 15 years in the making and think that building this company was easy, spoiler, (laughs) it wasn't. So today we're going to cover both the highs and the lows of what it took to build Credit Karma, everything from launching in 2007 during the Great Recession to navigating the sale more recently in 2020 at the onset of the COVID pandemic. And of course, to guide us through that journey, we have none other than Ken Lind, who is the founder and CEO of Credit Karma. So Ken, welcome to the program. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. I'm excited. So first, set the scene for me. Talk to me about how you came up with the idea, which was, as you put it to me yesterday, the first idea that none of your friends hated. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I've always been a little bit of a serial entrepreneur. And back in 2006 or so, I was running my own marketing agency. And and I was really searching for something that was going to be more scalable, more interesting than the marketing agency that I'd created. And a couple of things that happened along the way. And I think one is I realized that credit scores were really important. Uh, You know, credit scores are really a defining metric of your financial life. But every financial services company, every credit grantor, every subscription service, whether that be Comcast, and there would be Netflix, they actually kind of care about your credit score because it gives you a sense of who's going to pay, but also the longevity of that customer. So the idea of Credit Karma really formed in that context of, hey, people really want it. I think we can give it away for free. And I think it'll help consumers find the right financial products based on that information. So I shopped around to a bunch of friends and I always kind of tell the story that 
always found the most useful feedback were not the friends who were just telling me that, you know, it was the best idea and I should do it. It was always the ones that kicked the tires, right? It's the, always the ones that pushed I'm like, did you think about this? And what about from a regulatory perspective? And how much is a credit score going to cost? Let me take a look at the model. And, you know, it's through those that the learnings really get fleshed out and the ones that push you to think bigger. But that was the context and the founding of Credit Karma was a lot of times in Starbucks. And to your point, it was the first idea that my friends didn't, you know, universally say this is terrible. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of crazy that, you know, back then, one of the most important numbers in your financial life was basically opaque or unattainable until it was too late. You know, you got denied from a loan for a house, for a car. Love to fast forward a little bit. 2009, world's falling apart, post-grace recession. You've actually already raised your first kind of initial bit of money from the CEO of eLoan, but you're going out for your, your Series A. FinTech is at this point, you know, about a decade away from even being considered a category. So tell us about your experience doing that kind of first major raise. I'd raised an angel amount, a few hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, things were going up and to the right. And, and you felt like you had the momentum and, you know, we had the user base. So we felt like we were on the right trajectory. And I think like many entrepreneurs and, you know, to quote Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. But we had a plan, right? We we're going to go over as our Series A and then you get punched in the face with the Great Recession. And but we were basically catering our revenue stream was going to come from financial services companies. And at that point in time, um, it was unclear as to which financial services companies would survive. So with that as backdrop, you know, what we thought was going to be a relatively easy fundraise turned into a nearly impossible fundraise. And maybe a couple of war stories here was, you know, I probably pitched 100 companies in that time period. And, you know, they were all like, yeah, interesting idea. But there's no way we're funding this in the context of the Great Recession. But two interesting stories. I, I think one specifically was when we were down and out, you know, we did get one term sheet and just a rough order of magnitude. I think we wanted a $10 million pre, which is like, you know. And, and for context, you guys had you had real, you know, metrics. You had a hundred thousand users, I think, at the time. We're doing about twenty thousand yeah. in, in monthly revenue. Yeah, exactly. We had real metrics. We had real users. And I thought it was a reasonable type of expectation from a fundraise. But in the backdrop of the environment, it was not happening. But I remember we got one term sheet and uh, it was the only term sheet that we had. And, you know, I wanted 10. They offered like four. You know, I wanted to raise like a million. They wanted me to take two and a half. But if you do the math on what two and a half million dollars on a four million dollar valuation means, it means you're basically giving up a whole bunch of equity on dilution. You're not really a founder anymore. You're more of an employee of a of a firm. So <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think in that context, you now I think they they wrote the offer because they couldn't. And in their and to their credit, there was probably a bunch of uncertainty, so they're taking a gamble on it. And I remember that being one of the hardest decisions because we ultimately decided not to take that, and it really meant that we were out of money. You know, I scraped together like the last $75,000 that I had, wrote it back into the company and just said, well, this is it. We're not going to make payroll in a few more of these. Did, did you miss any payrolls or did you... We've never missed the payroll, luckily. Uh, I've always kind of found a way, but you know... I've been I, in I companies think... that have missed payroll before and it, it uh, really well, happens. Yeah, I think people don't write about that enough. I think people think that the, you know, the path is like, oh, you just raise an A, you raise a B, it's super easy. And, you know, you go from 25 to 100 to a billion and you go public. Like, that's not really how it goes in entrepreneurship. And people should talk about that more. So 
that was a really hard decision for us as a team. I remember I, I took it to our co-founders. I said, I don't think it's a good offer. I think we shouldn't do it. I'll do everything I can to go and figure out how to make this happen. So we scraped together a few more dollars along the way. Somebody introduced us to QED. And back then, fintech wasn't a thing. And I don't think QED was a thing in the sense that you know they'd probably funded two or three companies before us. Yep. Yeah. They were just getting started. It was, you know, Nigel who'd founded one of the only banks to be founded in God knows how long, taking a bet on a category that didn't really exist. So yeah, an interesting firm at the time. And you've gotten a lot of no's from people on Sand Hill Road, but then took a red eye back to the, the East Coast. Yeah, that's right. So somebody made an introduction. And for anyone who doesn't know QED or Nigel, Nigel co-founded Capital One. And uh, he spun out of there and really created a venture firm focused on fintech. And that was an interesting intro. Sent them the deck. They said, well, we'd love to meet you. You know, took a red eye out. Got there, met with Nigel, Frank, Caribou in the morning. And I think we pitched at 10 o'clock. We were probably done by, you know, 1130. I was at the airport probably like, you know, three o'clock taking a flight back to San Francisco. And what I thought was really cool about that was, I think by the time that I landed back in San Francisco that night, we actually had an offer that they knew what I really wanted, which was that $10 million. That $10 million matter because it meant it was, you know, at least on par with, you know, some of the friends and family writing checks. It was really interesting to me in terms of how quickly they got it relative to people who don't understand the space, right? I mean, here was a bunch of him and Han from 100 VCs over that duration of people who didn't want to get involved. And then here we are, someone who could turn around a term sheet and matter. And I guess my point here is the people who get it will really get it. I don't think that you get that much more clarity on thinking about a deal for an extra two or three weeks. But sometimes you really know from investors who understand the space. Yeah. And when you're pioneering a new category, it's really hard because there is no category of investor to go out to. There's no like list of top fintech investors before fintech which means there isn't this kind of depth of expertise. So you have this double challenge of, you know, incredibly challenging environment, kind of pioneering a new category and having to find the first believers. Yeah, that's exactly right. Just to double click on that point, right? And I think the key here was the expert here, right? Like, you know, the brand names of venture didn't matter. What mattered was actually the investment partner having expertise in the space. That's what made the difference. What do you think were kind of the core things that they understood or got that maybe other people didn't understand as well? Yeah, I think they understood the value of credit, right? And if you're a VC, right, like you just apply for a credit card and you get it, right? Like, <laughs> what's the big deal, right? Yeah, I don't think they're necessarily... sitting in your like mail all the time. Yeah, so I don't think they're yeah. exposed to the problems of the 95%. And I think that was one of the challenges that we had in the space. And I think that was something that, you know, Nigel and Frank and team were uniquely qualified, right? They started, you know, Capital One and they focus on helping the underserved and the people who don't have great credit. So this was something that was directly in their wheelhouse and they got it immediately. Yep. Totally. The Capital One's initial card programs, a lot of them focused on folks who like this was their first credit card. So they spent a lot of time in that, that area. Cool. I want to fast forward a little bit. So kind of 2011, you've raised your Series A. Things are still going pretty well. You're growing. You need to grow faster. And you kind of stumble into this really surprising area of growth, which has to do with remnant media, which kinks the growth curve. So tell me a little bit about that story. So we'd raised the money from QED, I want to say 2008, 2009. And then for the focus for the next year or two was unit economics, right? So we wanted to make sure that 
for every dollar we put into the system, we could you know roughly get a dollar out of the system. And over the course of that year, year and a half, we actually got there. So we felt pretty good. We were like, hey, for every user we get, we're not really making any money, but it's working. We're breaking even. And that's a pretty important milestone. So the next endeavor was actually how do we grow? And if you recall, my, you know, my prior business was really a digital, so a marketing agency. So I was pretty good at search, pretty good at display. The challenge on those fronts is that you know when somebody's making $200 per user and you're making a dollar a user, like you can't compete on AdWords, you can't compete on display. So we really yep. thought about what can we do it? And in that prior life of mine, I'd worked with a major ad agency and I called up one of their partners and said, hey, it's Ken, remember me? I'm running this little company called Credit Karma now and we're interested in understanding television. What should we do? What can we do? And, you know, he said to me, Ken, well, you know, it's probably going to cost you about two, $300,000 to shoot a commercial. You're probably going to need about half a million dollars worth of inventory. And then and only then you might get a read on whether or not it's going to yep. work. Now, we probably had about a million dollars in so the bank. So a million dollars right? just to test the waters is basically yeah. what he's so telling Almost a yeah. million dollars to test the water. Basically, everything that we had in the bank. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make a bunch of sense. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, being a little bit of a scrappy startup that we are and wanting to test everything, what we did was we took my DSLR, we took two employees, we bought maybe $30 in props, we rented a sound studio, we shot our own commercial. I think we spent about $300 all in between yep. the props, the sound studio and all of that. And the and voice that, actor from Craigslist. Yeah, and a voice actor. and. We we, <laughs> we shot a commercial and uh, I didn't really think much of it. I knew we had it in the can, so to speak. And I just kind of let the team run with it, you know, moved on. There's a lot that you're doing, so you don't think too much of it. But back then, we used to have this uh, email called uh, the good hour email. And you would get this email every time it hit a certain threshold. And I think the threshold at the time was like 100 registrations within the hour and what happened was I got one of these good hour emails in the middle of the night. And I was like, well, that's really weird. Like, you know, you don't get 100 users in the middle of the night. What the hell is going on? So whatever, it's the middle of the night. I don't think anything of it. Random things happen all the time, right? But then the next day, the same you know, exact thing happens at the same hour. So now I'm like, this is really weird. So I call up Greg, who is running our marketing programs. I'm like, hey, Greg, what's going on with these emails? And he's like, well, I didn't want to call you on this yet because I'm still trying to figure it out. But he said, I think it was television. I was like, huh, you know, the commercial that we shot for $300, that drove the good hour email? And then the key question here is, well, how much did you spend, right? Because yeah, yeah. it might be fine to drive 100 registrations, but, you know, if you spent $100,000 on it, it's not really performant. And he's like, I think we spent like 75 bucks, right? And yeah. I'm doing the math. I'm like, 75 bucks, 100 users, like that's less than a dollar per user. And that's the beginning of how we figured out remnant inventory. So we're buying inventory in the middle of the night. There'd be like these little, you know, so like some, some area around Cincinnati, 1.30 in the morning, excess ad inventory on TV. Boom, yep. up pops the credit card ad. That yep. you bought that space for like, 50 bucks, right? That's right. And, yeah. You know, and we got results immediately. Like it literally triggered our good hour email. And we were really onto something. And it's interesting, right? Because like 
One, I think we were using Spotrunner, which was one of these, and we ultimately ended using Google Television Auction. And I think we were probably one of their biggest customers. But literally over a course of a year, I think we earned from a $0 advertising budget to something like $100, $120 million a year, right? Because we'd figure it out. And every month, we're like, oh, I think we can spend a little bit more. And every month, we oh, I think we can spend a little bit more. And it was just phenomenal in terms of trying to figure it out. But, you know, we really challenged convention, I think, is, is maybe the lesson for entrepreneurs out there, right? One was, you know, that you have to go and spend half a million dollars to go and do these, you know, wild productions. But two, sort of the unconventional way that even the media, like we spent a $50, $75 spot and we learned so much from it versus buying, you know, national television platforms. So we really kind of were scrappy in that and it worked out really well for us. I think it's super, you know, at first you're like, we don't have a million dollars to run this. So you you run the program for a thousand dollars, you discover it works, and then you figure out how to actually spend $120 million a year doing it. And what's remarkable about too is when you scaled up the program is the extent to which it really did not increase CAC that much. So how much did kind of, I think you said like from one to maybe like $3, despite, you know, orders of magnitude increases in the budget. Yeah, in the first year, that's right. I think we probably went from one buck to, yeah, three bucks, four bucks. And we raised our Series B along the way. And that Series B was really about, you know, the media dollars and really accelerating that flywheel. But that's exactly what we did and, you know, how we were able to achieve it. But it was pretty powerful. And the key here was we figured out unit economics. So that really meant that our payback here was really great, right? Yep. The $5 million that we spent the prior month, you know, it was kind of, you'd make two and a half back the next month and you make another two and a half back the following month. So you could cycle through the capital pretty quickly, which made it really efficient. So uh, that was the very beginning of us. And by the way, you know, this is in 2011, 2012. We started the business in 2008. Well, we founded in seven, we launched in eight. So you're kind of really going along at a very low trajectory. And then you hit this inflection point of growth. But to your point about, you know, overnight successes, we've been on this, you know, journey for 15 years. But even at that point, we had been on the journey for five years, right? Before we really hit the inflection. Yeah. And I I thought you said something else interesting about that commercial, which was, if it looked like later commercials we'd run, we might never have actually gotten into this category. So what happened was we ran some subsequent commercials. They actually didn't have the same impact. They didn't have the same lift that the first commercial had. I think the note here is about perseverance, right? Like we got really lucky. I don't know if we didn't get that lucky. Would we have the same tenacity? Like, would we have tested five other commercials? Would we have tried other networks? Yep. We might not have, right? So, you know, the courage of your conviction sometimes and really luck goes into a lot of things, but we really quickly figured out that there's a formula that really matters. And we figured out that formula of what worked. But yeah, commercials two and three and four, not that great. You know, five and six got a lot better because we figured out that's when it really tapped the anxiety or sort of the frustration of consumers that made people want to latch onto credit karma. So next thing I want to talk about, you know, you can't provide free credit scores without actually paying someone to get the credit scores, which means partnering with the bureaus. Uh, And, you know, one of the kind of perennial truths in fintechs is that there are usually these gatekeepers in the forms of regulators or kind of key industry players who you have to go and get access to. And the terrifying thing is they can turn you off overnight. So we'd love to hear about 
getting the first partnership live. And then we can talk about chapter two, which is like when that live partnership almost died. <laughs> All right. Well, getting the partnership live. So that was kind of fun. So we'll go chapter one. So we spent our first year in stealth, which really means nobody really cared what you did, but we were just working head down. And, you know, one of the first things you got to do is you got to procure the data. So we went to the bureaus and we talked to each of the bureaus and we say, hey, we had this idea, you know, we're going to give the score away for free. We think, we, you know, we can help consumers find better marketing products or financial products from it. And uh, that's the model. And what was interesting was every single one of those bureaus said, no, nah, we're not taking on new customers. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean you're not taking on new customers? <laughs> like, isn't that you're, your job? You're, to take on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, you're almost like a public utility. What do you mean you're not taking on new customers? I have like half a million dollars in the bank. But if someone's going to say no, like, what do you really do? There's not a lot of recourse. And Credit Karma, I worked at this company called Elon, and Elon was an online mortgage company. And I reached out to our TransUnion rep and I said to him, hey, you know, I've got this idea. We're trying to get access to credit scores. Can you help me? He's like, I think so. So we filled out the application, submitted it. And I think, whatever, a month, month and a half later, we got an approval. We got, you know, our subscriber ID, the credentials that we needed to be on their development environment. And we spent the better part of the year coding against that particular API. So we felt like, hey, problem solved. Wasn't easy. It took a long time. It was certainly frustrating, but you know, problem solved. Let's move on to the next problem. So that was chapter one. But then fast forward, chapter two, a beach in Thailand, explosive growth, <laughs> near-death experience for the company. Yeah. So chapter two. So we're building the business. We spent about a year, 14 months or so getting to public beta. And I felt like, okay, public beta is probably a good time for me to go take a little vacation. My wife is Thai. We're like, let's go to Thailand. And this is 2008. It's February 2008. I have a lot of these dates in my mind <laughs> that are significant. So we got into public beta, which really meant that you had to have the code to get onto the site. Really, we're just letting our friends and family test it, right? Well, you know, I'm on the beach in Thailand. Uh, Nicole, who's one of our co-founder, calls. was like, hey, Ken, just want to give you a heads up that their American banker has written a story about us kind of without our knowledge about the business model that we were doing and that we're giving away free credit scores. And but, well, American Banker is a trade publication. It's really for mortgage bankers. No big deal. It's not subscription really dated for the most part, yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So who really cares? Right. So I go back to my vacation, no big deal. So I'm coming back from Thailand. And I remember this flight is, I think at the time, one of the longest flights in the world. So I think it's about a 16, 17 hour flight. So I'm on this flight, don't think anything, land in LAX. Well, back at the time, I would get a literal email for every registration that we would have on the site. I land and I turn on my phone and now I have internet for the first time after like two weeks, right? And I get like <laughs> this, like, da, 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 like, I get like 6,000 emails and I call, you know, I call the call, like, what happened? You know, like, how did we get all this, these registrations? Like, well, you're on the plane, Ken, but while you were on the plane, we made it to the front page of Slick Deals and people had put up the telefriend code. So it became what would be viral right today. And, yep. You know, we basically started averaging like, Five, six, seven thousand users a day, and then 
over the next two days or so, just felt like you're on top of the earth, right? Like you feel like you have product market fit. You've got a bunch of traction. You got all these users. It's becoming slightly viral and that their friends are telling their other friends the yep. code's out there. So you're feeling really great and you're kind of like, all right, you feel like you're on to something. So probably two or three days after that, you know, you'll knock on the door <laughs> and knock on the door. It's a FedEx, right? And it's unexpected FedExes. And by the way, we don't get a lot of FedExes. So the FedEx is a termination notice. So the backdrop of this termination notice that we got from the Bureau was, hey, we got your application. We read it. We don't like your business model. And we didn't really read the application. (laughs) So, you know, we can't do anything. But the only thing we can do is we have a right of termination, right? So we're going to exercise that right of termination. So you've got 30 days before we turn off the lights. Um, So immediately from this moment of feeling like, wow, we really built this great service and product that people love to, oh my God, like 30 days, we're going to be out of business. And remember, the other two bureaus that wanted like nothing to do with us, right? So I think for 22 days, I think there are eight days left before we had the meeting, we scrambled to figure out like who made the decision, like who do I have to talk to? Yep. So somebody gave me an email address. They said, I think this is the person you want to talk to. So cold email, send them an email like, hey, my name's Ken. I, I started this company, Credit Karma. I think we're really on to something. I think we could work out a deal. You know, can we please meet on the phone on a call? And surprisingly, I got a response back that was like, hey, Ken, I'm going to be in San Francisco in a couple of days. Why don't we go meet for breakfast? Yep. And who was this individual? This is John Danaher. We've become amazing friends. He's been an amazing partner. So great things come out of this story. But he's like, let's go meet for breakfast. I remember the night before that meeting, I got literally not a minute of sleep, right? I just felt like it was going to be the biggest meeting. And everything that we've been working on over the course of the last 14 months is really going to hinge on how well this meeting goes. So we had breakfast. And you know, my pitch to him was really, look, we've got all this momentum, you know, at this point, I don't know how many users we've got, but probably some tens of thousands because of the slick deals piece. I'm like, we're clearly on to something. This is something you wouldn't build yourself. We're a small tech team. We're able to do this. Like, you should really allow us to continue to move forward. And he's like, all right, tell you what, we'll do it. But we want equity in this company, right? It was the deal. And I said, well, if you're going to get equity, like, this three dollars is, you know, whatever three dollars, <laughs> way too much. And we want some exclusivity, and we want some ongoing exclusivity rights. And so we negotiate a deal. Takes us a month of paper, but he said we'll keep the lights on until then. And that's how we struck the deal. And and it's interesting in hindsight, like the economics would have broken for us, and we would have run out of money. And given what we talked about, the Great Recession, I'm not sure we would have weathered through it because. Obviously, we would have been burning so much capital if we were paying, you know, rate cards. Yep. So yep. it was really a blessing in disguise. And, you know, it allowed us to get through it. It allowed us to build a really strong partnership with TransUnion once we're able. But, you know, I often talk a lot, you know, sometimes forgiveness is a little, you know, better than permission. In this particular case, is a little bit of like, well, the traction allowed us to 
get forgiveness down the line in the form of it got us the numbers and like the the credibility we needed to build a bigger, stronger partnership. Yeah. And as you're talking about like, you know, the highs in entrepreneurship, very high, the lows, very low. And the delta in time between the two can be surprisingly short. Two days, two days, yeah. in this case. maybe three days, right? I mean, it was insane. Yeah, yeah. You went from fastest growth, almost shut down to actually inking a new partnership with a key partner that reduced your you know, cost by like 90%, which to your point was very material to the business. So you would have had different issues had actually that conversation not happened at some point in time. So... It's always crazy to hear stories like that. I want to kind of go on and talk about one of the next milestones for the company, which is, of course, the exit and every and the sale uh, to into it. You know, every deal is fraught and has its own hair on it. But I want you to talk through what was your experience given February 24th was a big day for you. So maybe just start there. What was going on on February 24th, 2020? Yeah. So, February 24th was the day that we were going to announce the deal. We woke up as a board. You know, we were up literally the morning at five o'clock. And that's the morning that the Dow futures were down about 600 points because COVID was really starting to come into focus. And this was the first time that it spooked the markets. And the futures are down like 600 points, right? So like this is going to be a massively bad day for the market. And we're up 90 minutes in advance of the market opening to vote on this deal, which is going to be announced in the public market. And keep in mind, we're getting half stock in the deal, right? So we're like, wait a minute, (laughs) everything's indexed. And um, is this the right moment? But as challenging as that moment was, we like, hey, you know what? We spent the time. This is a moment in time. This is for the long term. So we announced the deal, but that was... A stark moment for us, and uh, you know, we kind of like looked down the you know the barrel, and we're like, all right, we're going to do this. Yep, you, yeah, you you announced the deal in the yeah. face of like kind of one of the biggest existential risks, like you know, in a quite a long time. But as you're about to get into like announcing a deal is actually just the beginning of a long journey. Yes, so this is a complicated deal. So the deal is announced, and but the deal can't close till a bunch of process happens. And one of these processes for us is a DOJ review, right? Antitrust review, because Intuit is big enough, we're big enough that they do a review. Well, the problem with that is you don't know how long that review is going to take. So what you do customarily in the paper is you say, well, from the time you agree to the time you close, Credit Karma has these covenants, right? And our covenants are, we're gonna operate in a reasonable manner. We're gonna do what we've always done. We're not going to hoard cash. We're not going to be drunken sailors with cash. We're just going to operate. And when you're signing, you're like, that makes sense. We have no intention of doing things differently than what we normally do, right? So, of course. So, when you sign it, you don't really think about it because you have every intention of fulfilling on that. Well, the challenge is no one sees COVID coming. So, we sign on February 24th. And if you remember COVID, that was roughly the first week of March, right? That was the Everyone go home. We don't know what this thing is, but we're going to have everyone go home. But then, you know, April comes along and then May comes along. And the context of those months are, you know, what I can't remember our revenue numbers, but they drop a lot. You know, I want to say they drop from maybe $100 million a month to 50, right? Like you're all of a sudden like profitable to burning a lot of money. (laughs) Yep. 
And you don't know how long that's going to last. And now you're in this really And this is before the fundraising markets had kicked back off and you can't make changes to the structure of the capitalization of the business anyways and all of that. That's right. That's right. No one's finding it. No, no one's doing it. I mean, no, you can't call a VC. Like, there's no one to talk to, right? Yeah. And what I'm getting, you know, from the board is like, hey, Ken, you should lay off everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to be really careful. You're going to run out of money. You need to really manage your burn. You have no idea when the market is going to come back. And by the way, you should not think that Intuit is going to close its deal, right? Because there's no way they're going to close its deal. Like, and then on the other side of the whispers in my ears, you know, I call Sasan, who's the CEO of Intuit. And I'm like, hey, my board doesn't really think this thing is going to happen. And I don't know what exactly to do. And we can't even close this thing because we've got the government who's reviewing it. And we can't tell if they're going to take, you know, one month or 10 months, right? Or 18 months, right? Quite honestly. So, you know, he's like, Ken, we are a company of integrity. We follow through on what we say. This thing is going to close, right? So I've got like these two extremes of like, well, if I just get through the other side, it won't matter. You know, the other side of that is like, you might never get to the other side, in which case you'll run out of money and the business yeah. will go out during... And laying off employees could jeopardize the deal because one of the things they're acquiring is the talent. And so... that That's right. And then, you know, keep in mind, like, we're going to operate the business as you normally would. And obviously that you're not operating as you normally would. Your revenues just dropped in material way. So it's a really challenging moment for us. And we did the best that we could in terms of leading through it. You know, we took pay cuts. We talked to the whole team. We reassigned people. We're like, hey, we don't need any recruiters right now. But if you want to be a program manager and learn a new career, we're going to focus on building a product. We focused, we rallied around Project Relief, which was, you know, we were organizing all of the debt relief programs that the government and the states and the mm -hmm. forbearance programs. And the good news is it really helped us on the engagement. So it felt good that we were doing something. But we led through all of that. You know, revenues came back. The DOJ got through their review and into it, much to their integrity and their word, uh, closed a deal when the DOJ got through it and we got to the other side of it. But it was a harrowing process. Yeah, everything Dow down 600 points the day it's announced, revenues down, you know, 50% over the next few months. Facing the prospects of layoffs, you don't have to lay off anyone, though you do have to do material restructuring to compensation and moving employees. But yeah, then the, the deal gets done and it happens. Um, but you guys, you have come through quite strong and inside of Intuit. You've still been building and shipping and growing. And the metrics you guys have been putting out and the contributions making there are super impressive. Maybe just to kind of close out on the Credit Karma story, talk to us about What's next for Credit Karma in terms of what you guys plan to be building out and what the product roadmap looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think the great thing about both Intuit and, and really the vision is there's a strong alignment around that vision. And, you know, and, and I think what people miss about Credit Karma is really what we're trying to do. Our point of view is that you know, a consumer's financial life is very disparate. The silos, the product are somewhat blind to the other ones, right? Like, my checking account doesn't know how much my credit card account has. What we think Credit Karma can really do is piece those things together, create awareness around it, but then also start automating the processes, right? We're going to help you manage your financial life in a way that really feels like it's in control so you can achieve the goals that you want. So we're really excited about that. And you know, when you think about the synergies between Intuit and the fact that, wow, they have $100 billion of 
you know, tax returns each year. They have another $200 billion worth of payroll. And all of those dollars are really kind of flowing into financial institutions that aren't necessarily optimized. We can optimize. I think we can get consumers into, you know, a much better spot. And that's uh, what we're focused on. Yeah, totally. Just things like tax refunds and to your point, you know, payroll, like having access, not that from a distribution standpoint, but just an ability to tie in and do automations that are super material. That's right. Um, Cool. Now, that's super exciting. I think automation is one of the big kind of hopes for the future of, you know, what's next in financial services for consumers. And then to wrap things up, you know, we have a lot of founders and prospective founders in the audience. So what advice would you have for prospective or current fintech entrepreneurs? Oh, gosh. Well, we try to you know interlace them throughout a little bit of the war stories. But, you know, I always <laughs> think about this. It's like, you know, as a founder, it's, it's a hard journey. And, you know, I always say, like, your job is to keep the team in the game, right? Like, one more pitch, one more at that. That is the job. And, you know, it's a long journey, but don't give up, right? Like, this is a role that never feels good in the sense that you're always alone or oftentimes alone. But hopefully we've demonstrated a little bit of you just got to find a way. And when you do that, great things can come. So be passionate about what you do. Keep finding a way. Keep on pushing through. Well, Ken, thank you so much for coming out. This has been an absolute pleasure and um, just really great stories to, to think through. So thanks for spending some time with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.